Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. I have two very special guests with me to introduce today's show. Sitting in studio here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, the one, the only, the talkhouse.com film editor-in-chief, Nick Dawson. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be back. And joining us from North Carolina, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com and a host of Vanity Fair's awards podcast, Little Gold Men, Katie Rich. Katie, it's been too long. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, it's so good to be back. Today's show is a collaboration between Talkhouse and Little Gold Men and features two fantastic directors in conversation, Lulu Wang and Ruben Ostlund. Nick, how did this one come together? Katie and I had been talking about the fact that we really wanted to get Lulu on our respective shows. And when I reached out to her, she was very excited to talk to Ruben. I happened to be Facebook friends with him. And so it was actually one of those remarkably simple things to put together. I just dropped him a line. He wrote back really quickly. And all we needed to do is find an engineer in Gothenburg. Pretty straightforward, right? (laughs) This is our first time working in Gothenburg. It's also Lulu's first time on the show. We are, of course, big fans of her new movie, The Farewell. Yeah, no, it's it's a great movie. You know, it was one of the sort of standout films, Sundance, got picked up by A24, and had a really strong showing at the indie box office this summer. Yeah, I got to be one of the lucky people who watched it roll out over the course of the summer since I no longer live in New York or L.A. And it just opened in my town a couple weeks ago at the local art house, watching other audiences discover it after these, you know, weeks and months of discussion since Sundance. It it just felt like such a wonderful summer gift. And I I love it when A24 in particular has had a good track record of bringing us these excellent indies in the middle of summer, kind of just when we need them most. Yeah, so this is Lulu's second film. She directed the 2014 movie Posthumous, but this is really her breakout movie. It's a really smart and sweet and sensitive movie. For people who don't have it on their radar already, this is a movie based on Lulu's personal experience about her going to China to visit her grandmother when she's terminally ill. But the movie's hook is that nobody's telling the grandmother that she is terminally ill. And it's about saying goodbye when you're not actually allowed to say goodbye when there is that decision to withhold the information. And it's it's a really beautifully made film. And, you know, when Lulu is talking to Ruben in, in the conversation we recorded, she talks about the, the drama of not having drama, of not having those big moments, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah, and something else I think she and Ruben talk about is what I think is such a powerful aspect of The Farewell is that it's this very specific story. It's set in China. It's about this Chinese family. It's about what's apparently a a fairly common thing in China where you might not tell an elderly relative that they're dying, but it feels so universal. It feels like you're kind of inserting yourself right within this family. And I know so many people who have just recognized part of themselves and their families and maybe their grandparents in The Farewell, which I think is why it's a powerful film and why it's doing so well at the box office. Absolutely. No, it's definitely universal. And it was really cool to hear Ruben talk about him relating to the film so strongly. And it's, you know, as somebody who is from a very different background, you know, he's a a Swedish director. His major movies are Force Majeure and Square, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 2017 and went on to be uh, Oscar nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. And, uh, you know, he's sort of one of the titans of the new European art cinema. His new movie that he is currently in pre-production on is called Triangle of Sadness and is about the fashion industry. And, that's a thing that can make anybody happy to hear a title like that with, <laughs> and a subject matter. With that. I think that is going to be excellent. 
Yeah, when I saw Force Majeure, it's another one of those movies that's about a different country. It's set in his uh, native country of Sweden, but it's this family drama, basically, and about this one moment where a father and a family just does this horrific, cowardly thing and all the repercussions that come from it. And it's really funny, but also really dark and really just kind of like frank about the uh, nature of humanity. And it's really exciting. It's being remade with Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus in the starring roles. So that might tell you something about the universality of that story and, you know, how (laughs) exciting it might be to transfer to to different actors. Yeah, that's going to be really fascinating, I think. You know, The Square was, to me, one of the most interesting films that came out in 2017. It's sort of like outlandish and large, tonally sort of very out there, but also really smart and intellectually very adventurous. And as you'll hear in this conversation, he's a really, really thoughtful guy. And they talk about some pretty pretty profound stuff. It, like, I love the fact that they managed to talk about sort of big ideas, but in a way that's like really engaging and and entertaining at the same time. Yeah, the theme that I really saw run through this conversation was how important it is to step out of binary thinking, how important it is to step away from false dichotomies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that that Lulu talks about is the problem of when you have a particular identity, when you're telling a story, people are saying, well, are you for something? Are you against it? You know, because she is emerged as one of the most important Asian American filmmakers of of her generation with this movie, uh, you know, People want to pin her down to like, are you pro-China? Are you anti-China? Are you pro-this? Are you against that? And it's, you know, reality and stories are are not black and white. They're not one thing or the other. And, and, you know, one of the really nice moments of this conversation is Ruben talks about the role that cinema plays in our lives, which is kind of about the way that we have discussions. And I, I thought that was really fascinating. We also hear about the way these complex questions are tackled in the media and how the internet turns us into shitty people <laughs> as well, which is, I think, is an interconnecting subject matter, to be honest. Yeah, you can't blame them for thinking any of that about how social media ruins people. But you also think about the the power of social media for spreading the word about the farewell and then also force majeure in the square before that, uh, which, uh, you know, any indie filmmaker is definitely aware of that. So it's a real uh, catch-22. The thing you hate is also uh, bringing you success. Mm-hmm. It was so fascinating to hear how people in Sweden think Ruben's movies are so heavy and dark and how the rest of the world actually thinks they're comedies. We also get to hear what Lulu and her boyfriend Barry Jenkins kick back and watch when they're wanting to watch something a little less serious. And then there's also Lulu's response to what happened when she was told by some American bro to go back to Japan. Mm. Wow. She's a small lady, but fierce indeed. (laughs) Should we run the tape? Let's run the tape. Hi, Ruben. How are you? Can you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to talk to you. We, we didn't meet directly, but sort of in passing a few years ago when my boyfriend is Barry Jenkins, he presented your award. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Ah, cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, but really nice to talk to you and, and thank you so much for the film. You know, I requested, they asked me who I would like to speak to and I said, of course, ideally it would be uh, Ruben, but nobody told me that you had agreed and, and I just found out yesterday. So I'm very, very excited. Um, your work is a huge inspiration for me. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, I have heard uh, people talking about the farewell and uh, then when I, uh, Nick uh, sent me your name and then I was like, yeah, of course, I, I would like to do that. So I, I think I, uh, I like the setup of this format that uh, two film directors are talking to each other. Uh, so I'm curious if we will uh, get to any interesting content, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> 
I have a lot of questions. I would like to start actually because I, I watched the farewell uh, last night. I got the link quite late, but I watched it on, uh, last night and uh, I would like to say thank you so much for the movie. I thought it was interesting because I could relate very much to the story, even if I don't have uh, any of that kind of background. Mm-hmm. It was very touching. And um, I think I related a lot to it because my mother comes from the northern part of Sweden. So she's brought up in Haparanda. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is quite far away from where I was brought up in, in Göteborg, in Gothenburg, on the west coast of Sweden. But... I could really relate to like uh, your parents leaving China and then moving and you growing up uh, in another country. And um, I would say that my mother, I've always felt a little bit, you know, almost misplaced that that there, there was something about her that she said that she would move back when she got older and so on. But then I got kids and... Uh, she was then staying here in Göteborg with me mm-hmm. uh, because of their grandchildren, of course. But I had a similar experience when I met my grandfather the last time that was really, really beautiful portrayed in your film when you were when you were living in the car. Mm-hmm. And the last uh, glimpse, or how do you say, of, of your grandmother, I was up in Haparanda uh, with my daughters and uh, I realized that this is probably the last time I would see my grandfather and uh, since I don't don't visit Haparanda that often. Mm-hmm. And we were leaving in the car, you know, like we were saying goodbye at the entrance of the door and then uh, getting into the car. And I could see that even he, he had such a problem of walking, he, he would stand up and look through the window, the kitchen window, and try to get the last glimpse of us. And it was so touching. And, and when I saw it, it was like, it was striking me immediately in the same way that, that you portrayed uh, the scene in the film. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Wow. Yeah, it is. It's so hard to, uh, in a way, like they, they want to have a last glimpse, but I think there's also this sense of dignity of, um, you know, as a human being, like wanting to stand, wanting to come downstairs, wanting to say goodbye and holding on as, as much as possible. Like people have told me that in, in their experience, they've experienced something similar where you know, their grandmother, grandfather also will like touch the car as it's driving mm. away. Uh-huh. So, so it's, um, it's, it's so interesting to hear that immigration and this sense of distance and uh, mm. displacement, it's, it's not just as extreme as uh, an immigrant from China moving to the United States. I think that, you know, as the world is getting bigger, but getting smaller in many ways that everyone senses this kind of displacement because we're not growing up and all living, you know, multiple generations in the same town. (laughs) My parents, the history of of my family and why, you know, we moved for mostly political reasons. My father came to the U.S. to study, to get his PhD, um, but my father used to be a diplomat for the Chinese Mm -hmm. government since the age of nine and um, went to the Soviet Union at the age of 16. And then when he was 30, I think 33, is when he moved to America and he uh, later started working for the State Department. But I've always found his story very interesting because he was raised from a, a, you know the, the age of a, as a child to be a nationalist, to, to, to love country. Mm-hmm. And yet I think later he felt very betrayed by the trust that he put and, and the value that he put as a, you know, belonging to the state. 
that he would be taken care of always. And he, and he wasn't. Um, and then when he came to the U.S., he very much embraced being an American. He thought, well, this is a place where you can really put your trust in the state and um, mm. really, really wanted to be seen as American, wanted to be an American, wanted to work for the government. But of course, because of his history, he could never build enough trust. There was, it was, there was no way that he could ever get past the background checks. And so in a way, he is this... Um, somebody who from a young age has been trained to give up the sense of individual and devote his life to country. And now in his older age, it's like, well, what country do I truly belong to? Because nobody will have me. Mm -hmm. And it brings up this question of like, you know, how do we identify? Is it by blood? Is it by where your heart belongs? Is it by politics, you know, is it by culture? Like these are all very different things. And yet, even in modern society, we're asked to be very reductive about it. And it's like, what are you? Hmm. And, and you, your identity, what do you feel about your identity when you, how many percentage do you feel Chinese and how many percentage do you feel American? <laughs> um... I feel pretty American. I, I mean, you know, I feel, I feel, I would say I feel a hundred percent American, but it's how do other people look at me? You know, there's moments in which like internally, I've never felt more American than when I'm in China. That's when I realize, oh, I am very, very, very American. I am, of course. Uh, but, yeah. you know, there's of course moments in which you're reminded that you are not seen this way, you know, like a, few years ago, I was at, in Nantucket at a bar and uh, just trying to get a drink. And this very tall guy was uh, kind of pushy and wouldn't let me through. And I was like, excuse me, you know, can I just grab a drink? And, and he's like, just go back to China. Uh, go, he goes, he said, go back to Japan. And mm. I was so stunned by that. And I wasn't sure if I should comment on his ignorance first oh, or just and laugh at his ignorance or or, yeah. or be offended. I didn't even know what to say in that yeah. moment. Um, I just kind of stood up on a bar and threatened to punch him, mm. which showed how American I am. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, exactly. You, know? <laughs> you react with violence. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's true. Yeah. I think it's interesting with, um, I mean, in these times also, of course, uh, when we're talking about how we are dealing with racism and things like that. And I made a film that was that is called Play that uh, yes. was based on uh, events that took place in Gothenburg where I live, where it was a group of young young boys that was robbing other young boys. And, and the robbers, they had one thing in common and they, it was that they were black. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were like 12 years old or something, these boys that, that were doing the robberies. And then they, they were really, really aware of how to use uh, like the stigmatized image of the black man, the dangerous black man that Swedish kids only have gotten to know through media experiences mm -hmm. from, from, from fiction films, et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, I think in Sweden now, when it comes to like how media is, uh, is trying to deal with these things, we have an extreme right-wing party that is called the Sweden Democrats. And uh, people are like, um, like screaming racists uh, mm -hmm. about them all the time over and over again. Mm -hmm. And every stupid comment they do 
that is like a racist comment get fully exposure in the in the in the papers mm-hmm. so it's like bringing out the bad behavior giving it oxygen over and over again and I was thinking about my daughters then that then is going in a school uh, when I was younger when they were going from grade one to grade nine then they have a lot of different ethnicities and backgrounds on the kids and they have never heard about the idea about racism mm-hmm. and then uh, all of a sudden when they get a little bit older then they are learn that okay there's something in, in in this society that's called racism and uh, the one that is put up for racism are like your some of your classmates mm-hmm. and then suddenly they are trained into this way of thinking so um, I, i think it's very it, it's an interesting topic how to handle it and how to deal with it and and in which occasions you should give this kind of problem Uh, oxygen and, and bring it up or in which uh, situations you you should just like I'm, I won't go there I know I won't comment on this guy I won't I won't say anything so yeah yeah I love that I, I love play so much uh, because I was really surprised when I watched it because I feel like so much so many stories in the world now because in a way you almost can't uh, separate news with fiction you know and so all all the stories in the world right now are creating a very distinct binary good versus bad racist or not racist and mm. i found it so interesting to explore all of the nuances and sort of the self awareness of how to utilize things and what does knowledge do for like what does that awareness do for the characters And, and utilizing that, I don't know if that makes sense, but I just, I, I love that it's, um, it's not clean, you know, it starts a conversation and that people might disagree, but that it's really nuanced um, because I find myself asking a lot of questions that I'm afraid to say in mm. the world because it's almost like if the, the minute that you start arguing on one side, then you must be labeled as XYZ, right? Yeah. And so, for example, like what you were just saying, I experienced this recently with the Me Too movement where I said, you know, I started talking to my mom and I said, you know, like all of this stuff is reminding me of this um, neighbor that we had. Uh, do you remember? Like he he used to like grab all the kids in the pool and he would chase after the girls. And one time he, he locked us in the house And, uh, and, and try to pull his pants down. And, you know, I came and I told you about that. And she's, and I said, you know, but back then, like, like nothing happened to him, right? He wasn't arrested or anything like that. And I, and, and I, I said, and I told you about that. And she said, yeah. And I told you just to stay away from him. And mm. she said, she said, you know, like, I just, you came and told me and I said, you know, just don't go near him and <laughs> didn't make a big deal out of it. And I really thought about that. I said, you really didn't make a big deal out of it. And it, it never really it traumatized me in a way maybe that it should have. And do you think that it's because, like, what do you think that is? Do you think it's be, like, in a way, I, I can't help but think if my, if my parents made a really big deal out of it and they yeah. had the man arrested and they told me, oh my God, this is so wrong. Like, it would have put so much of the shame and weight on me as a child. But in many ways, it was just like, my mom just said, you know, he's a gross man, like, just don't go near him. And, mm. and, and so there was a levity to it where it was gross and it was icky and we stayed away, but it didn't continue yeah. to impact me emotionally. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, sorry, continue. 
No, so that's all, that's all I would, and I made this short film um, called Touch that explores that because in some older parts of uh, some villages, you know, oftentimes it's cultures that are not exposed to Western media and um, media in general, um, but it's, it's kind of cultural that uh, sometimes older people will just touch children's private parts. Um, and so especially older men and little boys, but not in a sexual way. Um, a lot of times it's a, a sign of affection or a sign of, uh, you know, virility that it's, a, it's cause it's great to have a boy. It's great to have a son in the family. And so my mm. father, because he's a translator, um, came across several of these cases while he was working, uh, for the state department of, uh, people who, came to the U.S. as immigrants and worked at a flea market or some kind of a job where they didn't have a lot of access to Westerners and didn't speak English. But there were like three different cases where the men was in a bathroom or somewhere and um, touched somebody. Mm. And to, to in their mind, it's very innocent. It's In their mind, mm. it's, you know, like they knew the family. So when they saw the, the, the boy, uh, and I depict this in the short film in Touch, you, you see the way he touches. It's it's just, oh, you're so cute. Oh my God, look how cute. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the older brother sees it and runs out of the bathroom, tells the mom, and it spirals into this really big thing. Yeah. And uh, and then my father, as a translator, has to try and explain to between the judge and, and without defending, because the judge is saying, well, do you think this is ethically right? Is this in China? Is this like... Is this like mm. a cultural tradition? And he's like, well, I don't want to call it a tradition because it's not <laughs> like something that we all like, you know, applaud and think this is a great ritual, but it's it's a habit. You could say that it's a habit that isn't looked down upon and and it is cultural. Like he, he didn't have a sense of awareness and and how do you educate an immigrant on all of these nuances of culture, right? So, so yeah. he did it without knowing, but so then because he has a different context, how do you punish him and through what lens? And and for that child, if he's told that this is sexual and this is bad, does he grow up to think that? You know, does he carry all that shame? Whereas mm. if you're a child and you're told like, that's that's just your grandpa, he doesn't mean anything by it because in his mind, how can you sexual, this is a young child. There's a sexuality doesn't even come into it for him, you know, mm. so... So it's, there's an innocence to it, but, yeah. but, but the law comes in and spins it. And I think I started to think about two things when you tell me this story. I would love to see the short film. Um, please send a link yeah. uh, if you have one. Absolutely. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking about two things. One was like during the Second World War when um, all the men had left Berlin and were uh, in war. So the German uh, German men were out and uh, like dealing with the Second World War. And there were a lot of Russian soldiers in Berlin. And uh, uh, there was a lot of rapes happening on the, on the German women. And uh, the way that they were dealing with this was that they were considering it as a nature disaster, basically. Like, oh my God, it's raining. Oh no, I have to run, it's raining. Mm-hmm. I, I got away from the rain. Oh no, I ended up in the rain. Uh, uh, and uh, <laughs> that made it mentally possible for them to deal with it. They mm-hmm. didn't do it into anything that was personally aimed towards them. Mm. Uh, but the problem happened then when the men come home after the war. Then like when the when the shame was put into it and then it became a huge problem to deal with it. 
Uh, and the other thing that I was thinking about is um, um, when it comes to, for example, sexuality, when it comes to our new times, uh, when we are using our phones and so on, and we're sending pictures to each other, mm-hmm. and the concept of shame porn, mm-hmm. where uh, you are taking a picture of like a, yeah, a girl, of course, that have, have been nude. I don't have heard about it really when boys are exposed in that way. And they are put up these pictures on the internet. And I had a friend of mine, I, it's a controversial idea, but he, he is quite fun in, in twisting and turning our minds when we are thinking about these things. And he said, well, the best way of dealing with shame porn is that everybody have to put a nude picture of themselves on the internet mm. because then it will be no problem anymore. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting with what, what you say about your short film because uh, I, I really need, I, I really like films that is like making us see things from a different perspective. And we also have to ask questions about our own culture. And, and not accept the consensus. I, I love when, when our consensus are uh, questioned and, and we have to write, try to rethink, is we actually doing this in the best way? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I've read interviews where you talk about um, the media and the intention because they need clicks. And so it's all about not resolving a conflict, but um, actually creating more conflict right? And so that you, yeah. you you can tell by the headlines even, right? The way that they, and I've done interviews as well, where I talk for a very, very long time. And then the headline gets narrowed down into like one very kind of clickbaity kind of headline. And have you experienced this now with, uh, with your new film? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and not in a negative way. I think the journalists aren't trying to put me in a negative light, but just to kind of make a statement and mm. and but I can't help but think to myself, well, it's much more complicated than that, you know. But and then yeah. and, but then of course, if you read the comments, which I really try not to, but once in a while I do go down that uh, rabbit hole, and the comments are in reaction to a headline. Yeah. And because I'm Asian and I'm a female director, and it's it's about like one side or the other, and I'm either pro or I'm against, and it's like. You know, I'm just trying to tell a story about my family, you know, and I wanted to fight for the specificity of the story because that's my experience, you know, that I'm just trying to put my experience up on screen like anybody else. And yes, it's a political statement because there's so few people who look like me doing it, but it's also not a political statement because it's just my family and I'm just a human trying to tell my story. Mm. Yeah, sometimes when I'm thinking about like the things that is going on on the internet, it's almost like, okay, we have to start to consider that the world that is digital in a different way from from the world when we are meeting people in an analog way, when we actually have a meeting. Because my feeling is that we we actually are behaving quite nice to each other. Mm. It's very off, uh, seldom, I mean, that that uh, someone is doing something rude or are reacting in the way that, that um, is constantly brought up by media or in the commenting fields or so on. I mean, uh, your your experience in the bar for me is like sounds like something that doesn't happen that often. But when if you look at the internet, people have a anonymous uh, thing to, to, to hide themselves about. And then, then it's almost like there's a certain kind of behavior that is brought up that we have to start to think about, okay, this is actually not saying the truth about human beings. It's a, it's a behavior that maybe now when uh, we are living in a new time, when uh, we have the possibility to express ourselves and be anonymous, it will hopefully go back to uh, that we are uh, trained in and, and also understand that, uh, that we have to 
uh, be like editors of our own comments. Mm-hmm. That we actually have a responsibility as a publisher when we are publishing something. Uh, and um, yeah. Do you think a lot about responsibilities in your films? Because you've talked a lot about not having violence in your films because you haven't experienced it. And I really resonate with that because I do think that there's so much romanticization of violence in the media, especially American uh, media and American storytelling, uh, you know, that yeah. you you can have guns and people getting their heads blown off, but you can't show a woman's nipple. Yeah. And so I do wonder, like, the people who are telling those stories, have they ever actually experienced that kind of violence? And if they did, would they have a different point of view? Yeah. No, I, I definitely think that that is the, one of the most interesting things to be a film director and one of the most important things. What kind of experience are we... Uh, handing over to the audience. Is it experiences that we have from the cinema world or is it something that we have uh, a connection to in our life for real? Is this, uh, is this references that on how we look on the world or is it uh, like something that is... Uh, Fantasy? Uh, uh, fiction on a way that, that <laughs> he created from a fictionalized world. And uh, I think that in the same way as you're having a conversation with someone, you don't start to lie. You don't start to say, don't walk in that part of the city because it's super dangerous to be there if it's not true. Mm. That is unethical. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, of course, goes for cinema. Why should you start to lie about your experience in life? Your images will create the behavior. Your images will change people's behavior. And I think that um, moving images is one of the expressions that is probably uh, changing human behavior more than anything else, uh, more than still image even. Mm. Uh, and uh, um, there are scientists that is talking about like that. Uh, if you look on our memories, um, like 70% of our memories today are comes from mass media. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> uh, if we look at that, then of course, how we express ourselves about the world through fiction film is going to have a great impact on how people look at the world. Uh, so, so I think that is something that is very important to, to relate to and have an idea about. Then you're of course allowed to use your knowledge in any way you want. I, I'm, I'm not saying that we should have a, have a censorship and you're not allowed to express your wildest fantasies, but at least we should be aware of that. Uh, images, the more they are spread out, the more they will change people's behavior. And I don't think it matters if it's... Because when I, when I was brought up, then it was like a, a difference between documentary images or things that is said in the news or what's in the fiction films. Then it was like these are three separated uh, categories and fiction films is, is not affecting how we behave. I don't believe in that at all because mm-hmm. I think with little time aspect on when we have experienced these uh, images, we can separate them from a real life experience or, or not. Mm-hmm. So for an example, I tried to investigate this in a, in a film that is called Incident by a Bank, mm-hmm. uh, where I made a reconstruction of a failed robbery attempt that I experienced uh, myself. And I had never seen anything like that before in my life, but I have seen many, many films that was portraying this. What happens when me, it was me and my producer, Eric Hemmendorf, that one day we are, we are standing in the street in Stockholm and he's saying, do they have ski masks on them? Do they have, are they going to rob someone? You know? And I look over the street and I see on a moped, there's like two guys and under the helmets, it's white masks sticking out. 
and I'm trying to get some, <laughs> make this make sense. So I'm like saying maybe they are dealing with racing, you know, and they have these flame proof masks in order to protect themselves. And he's like, why should they have that? They're just a mop, but you know. And these two robbers, uh, they are very nervous and very stressed. So they are like going up on the curb and, and going across the street on red light. And then they are opening up the saddle and taking out two guns. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we realize, okay, oh my God, it is a robbery. And Eric is like saying, okay, should we call the police? And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, no, 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 no. We don't need to do that. You know why? Because under the desk in this jewelry store where they are going, there's a button. And when they push that, they meet, the police will come immediately, which is something that I create 100% from the fiction movies I have seen. I, have, I don't have a clue. <laughs> so it was so uh, interesting to see my own reaction was that I using the fiction references that I've had in my life and trying to explain the world that I was seeing in front of me. And what was happening was that the world were, were, it looked so surreal, so I couldn't compare it with my references. Mm. I thought the robbery would be like super efficient. I thought they would go, it, it was, what happening on the other side of the street was completely absurd because the robbers went to the wrong entrance uh, first and then they <laughs> jump on the moped and they go to the other entrance. And they all start to shoot yeah, yeah, a lot of gunshots and no one gets scared. You know, everybody's like just looking, uh, trying to get closer to, to get <laughs> to have a look on what's going on. I thought life would stop. I thought that the robbers would be <laughs> the main characters of the world for that mm-hmm. second. But it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so it was so many details of that that happened that mm, like made me aware of in which way the fiction movies had had like uh, changed my perception on events like that. Yeah, and it's so hard to take another to take a step back and then find another perspective, right? Because you really have to have objectivity. You have to take yourself out of uh, being the victim, being the bank robber, being the the hero or the victim or whatever you know that the archetype is in the media that we watch. And that's what I loved about incident by a bank when I watched it because it's a it's a completely different perspective it's it's going away from the drama it's actually the, the, the how mundane it is to to witness a robbery um, mm. and it's something that I was trying to explore in the farewell also because as we were developing the script there was uh, always notes coming back that said, well, shouldn't there be a climax? Well, we need some kind of catharsis. Uh, <laughs> you know, she, she must find out. And yeah. either we, she has to find out somehow. She must, she must fall to the ground and get sick, and then she goes to the hospital, and then she finds out, and then there's this moment of confrontation. And I said, yeah, but, you know, for me, having gone through this experience, I also felt that way. So for me, mm. the drama was that in my mind it felt like it, there should be a catharsis. If this yeah. were a movie, there would be that moment where I <laughs> could talk to her. So you when, almost provoked it to happen then, or no? <laughs> well, I mean, the whole time I wanted to tell her the truth, first of all, I believe that she should know. And then also yeah. in my mind, even before going there, one of the reasons why um, in real life I rented a camera is because I thought, wow, this is going to be really dramatic. And yeah, maybe yeah. May, maybe one of the, th- the good things that'll come out of this is that I'll, I'll film some stuff. And, and, it'll, and also if I have a camera, I'm going there as a filmmaker, as a documentarian. I'm not, I'm not a participant. I am an observer and it'll yeah. keep me distanced so that I don't 
start crying and then my grandma will know if, if I start crying and I break down, that's disaster, right? But if I can stay objective and observant. Yeah. So that's why I brought the camera. But what was interesting was that all of the drama was inside of my head. <laughs> was my desire for there not not necessarily desire but uh, almost the the inclination the sort of expectation yeah. for drama and the drama was the lack of drama yeah. and and I, that's what I was trying to pitch, you know, to my producers and explain to them was that actually yeah. nothing happens and that's why it's dramatic <laughs> and they were like wait huh what <laughs> I, I, when you say these things, I think it's so funny. Every time I bring up my phone and I'm filming something, I see this YouTube moment happening in my mind. You know, the other day I was flying on this airplane and I could see flashes from a cloud, a thundercloud. And of course, when I start to film it, I'm just waiting for the flash to hit the airplane or something like that. I want it, almost want it to happen, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> or when I'm filming a cat, I'm just waiting for it to attack me. Or yeah, It's like um, the absurdity of, of how these expectations of, of, of the images that we have been consuming is is changing our perception of things. And I thought it was interesting because, I mean, I think that today, if you look on how the movie industry have been dealing with storytelling, I think there have been a difference between the the American movies and the European movies and the Anglo-Saxon storytelling with like a protagonist and an antagonist. I think it's it's very problematic in in to explain the world in a binary way like Mm. that. And and in many ways, I would say like the, the European film culture have been a way of trying to fight <laughs> that way of f- f- a movie tradition, to try to be another reference to life, to, to try to tell about the life in a different way. Mm-hmm. And but but today, I must say that that fight is over. The Anglo-Saxon way of describing the world have won. And uh, if you look, for example, on, on news media today in, in Sweden or any, any Western country, I guess, uh, there, there's no story without a protagonist or antagonist. You mm-hmm. always have a main character of an event. It's always uh, told through an individual that either have done something good or that, that have done something bad. So I, I think this is something that we need to talk so much more about, especially when it comes to news reporting. Mm-hmm. because the journalists today, I think they are using this storytelling way in order to, of course, attract an audience. But but the consequences of that is that we are taking away so many ways of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if everything is put into this uh, format of storytelling, uh, then uh, it, 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 it will be interesting to see what the consequences of that will be. Yeah. And and I've been wanting to ask you, because you you make comedies. I mean, I, I wouldn't call them comedies. Um, it's so funny because, you know, in Sweden, everybody thinks the films are so horrible and scary. And Force Majeure was like a film that is like, oh my God, this is such a heavy topic. And how can you do some, this is so heavy. And who is supposed to look at it? And I'm like, it's, it is comedy. I think it's it's a dark comedy. It's satire in many ways. Mm-hmm. But it, then it's a relief for me also when people are saying in other countries, it's a comedy. But it's almost like when, when, when the films are uh, screened in Sweden, the reactions that I have to deal with is so much, oh, it's so horrible. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't understand what they are talking about. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. I think that's so interesting too. And it's one of the reasons I love your films. I think they, they talk about so many things. They explore so many things. They're very, very emotional and yet they're hilarious. And it's the situational comedy and it's um, this absurdist comedy and it's uh, the, the wide shots are something that I uh, respectfully stole from you. <laughs> um, the, the, you know, seeing the way that you describe Force Majeure as a family thriller, uh, I really mm. responded to and I uh, approached The Farewell in a similar way of getting really internally, it's a thriller, it's a horror film for the characters. And yeah. And, and building that tension and ha always having the lie be the monster in the room in the same way that um, for, for your main character in Force Majeure, that he his this uh, the unspoken elephant in the room. You always feel it, even though yeah. you don't see it. I mean, <laughs> do you think that people's ability to laugh at uh, see your film as a comedy or laugh is in a, somehow connected to their ability to laugh at themselves? Be I, I ask because... I've had very interesting reactions to my film of some people saying, oh my God, it's being billed as a comedy. If you watch the trailer, they're, they're, they're trying to sell it to you as a comedy, but it's so sad. I, I cried the entire time. And then other people will say, oh my God, it's being sold to you as a, as a drama, but it's, it's yeah. really hilarious. And I, I don't yeah. think that they're pushing the comedy enough. And so it's, it's <laughs> nice to, to really get it from both sides. Uh, but, but I also have people who are outraged where they go, you know, I love the film, but the only thing that ruined it for me are people who are laughing in moments that yeah. are not funny at all. And, yeah. uh, and, and the, the filmmaker, she, she would be so upset to know this. And yeah. I, I think, oh my gosh, if you, if you only knew how not upset I am, I, I don't, I think it's hilarious. And I think that you can laugh and cry at the same time and that there's yeah. no one prescription, but it's yeah. interesting when that people get so, um, you know, they, they fight for it so hard. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder what that is. Yeah, I think you point out the reason why cinema is important for me, at least right now. Because I think that, okay, what are one of the few reasons that we should go to the cinema today, since we can watch movies at home and pretty much have the, the same kind of quality? Well, it is to watch something together. Mm. And if we are watching something together, if everybody agrees, then there is no reason to watch it together. We have to have something to discuss afterwards. So the content has to be in some way that we maybe don't 100% agree. And, and for me, a film should raise questions that the, the audience afterwards have to start to try to verbalize and, and compare the different versions because otherwise there's no reason of, of going to the cinema. Mm -hmm. So like if you look at the format, film more like um, films that are put in, in, in packages like, like comedy or drama or thriller and so on, if they don't take their audience seriously, if they don't look at the audience that they are adult and intelligent people, mm. uh, afterwards it feels kind of empty to leave the, the, leave the cinema. Mm -hmm. you, you, yeah, very often I, I find myself of not understanding why did I go here, sit in silence for two hours and now afterwards, I'm leaving the cinema with this person that I went to the movie together with and we don't have anything to talk about. I almost always regret myself that I did go to the film. Mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking, why didn't we sit down and talk instead? We should just have a glass of wine and sit and talk and try to come to a great conversation. And sometimes when I'm at home, okay, I, I, I need a break from everything. Then I'm looking at ski films. So I started out <laughs> as a ski filmmaker. So I was look, I, then I look at ski films. It's completely stupid. You know, it's like people skiing down on, uh, from a ski slope and trying to do spectacular tricks in the air. 
And that's my yeah. I watch I watch <laughs> uh, Barry my... and I watch home renovation videos. Uh, we we watch uh-huh, HGV okay. oh, yeah, like yeah. people, and everyone's like, "You're both independent filmmakers. What important films do you watch on your time exactly. off together?" And we're like, "We watch yeah. uh, Love It or List It." You know, they're gonna yeah. fix the house or buy a new one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but and and I think we have to respect that human being works in that way. That yeah. we we need relaxation, and we can consider some parts of the film industry is something like that. It's not going to deal with bringing in uh, new topics and questions in our lives, and it's not always that we have the energy to to deal with that kind of content. Um, but there also needs another side of the of the film industry and the movies that we make and. But for me, when I'm going to the cinema, all the effort to go to the cinema and sit down there, then I really need something to talk about afterwards. Otherwise, I feel like, well, I could have stayed at home. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree. That's why I like films that don't give you the answers and um, Mm. really leave things open-ended and in many ways argue both sides of it enough that there's, yeah, that there's something to really think about. Yeah. I Can I ask you something? Oh, sorry, no. Continue. No, 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 go ahead. I, yes. Uh, um, when it comes to the content of your film, do you also, also see like there's something happening in the, um, in the movie industry that they are now trying to make films that can have an audience both in, on a Chinese market and on American market? And uh, that this content, of course, that is the good side of capitalism, of course, that suddenly like we are looking for a content that can work in both and actually then it comes out a great film. Uh, but, but how do you look on that? Do, do you feel any that this is, uh, content also is connected to uh, a window in the, in the time now on how you look on the, on the movie industry and the distribution system? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, 10, 20 years ago, nobody would be interested in China at all. But, you know, China is mm. a, a big part of uh, financing now, um, as well as just the, the marketplace. And so when I was trying to do Farewell, the main interest in it was from that perspective. Oh, here's a story that, you know, kind of uh, is a bridge between China and America. We could market it for both uh, markets and audiences. And but But still people were trying to figure out, well, is this an American film or a Chinese film? And trying to put mm. me in a box. And But if I said if it was an American film, then it had to look a certain way. And people couldn't speak in Chinese and we couldn't have subtitles. But if it's a Chinese film, then the main character has to be Chinese Chinese. It cannot be somebody who's coming from America and in any way disagreeing or criticizing mm-hmm. the Chinese perspective. And, and so there was no... Um, space for a story like this one that was actually just a human story of what it's like to be in between these two worlds. And Mm. I had to actually really push hard when finding my producing partners to say that, you know, I actually don't know if it's um, possible to make a film to appeal to both markets. I don't know that it's possible to make a good film in general when you're just trying to appeal to a market. First and foremost, you have to tell the story that you want to tell and and then you can look at who wants to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, we went into it trying to be a co-production, but my producers agreed that ultimately if the censorship required us to change too many things in the script that we would not jeopardize uh, the movie in order to accommodate that because, and and that was an ongoing debate was, well, how many 
notes, how many changes is too many? Where do you draw the line? And if you give an inch, what if they want to take a foot? And at what point does the movie no longer belong to the artist, to, to, to us as filmmakers? Um, mm. And we are pandering. And so, you know, I, I drew the line pretty close. I said, I'm not changing anything, <laughs> not a single okay. shot. And they said, well, can you give one shot? I mean, it's just one image. And I just, I said, you know, it's too early in my career to start to do that. I fought too hard for this movie. It's too personal. So I'm, I'm, I'm not giving in at all. Um, but it was a, a hard battle to fight. But uh, have you had cinema release in China? We now have, uh, co yeah, the co-production status and uh, we have, it's called the Dragon Seal. And uh, I won't talk about this on record, but if you want, we can talk more about how we had to navigate that in order to get it. But, okay, but, yeah. But it, it took a lot of navigation. Okay, mm, interesting. I, I, they're, they're giving me the wrap up, Ruben. I'm. I think that we're out of time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I could talk to you forever. I want to. Uh, yeah. yeah, but uh, likewise, I, uh, it was, it was really fun to talk to you, and I, I, I have a lot of a lot of things. Thank you so much for the film, and I'm looking forward for the for your next one. Are you working on a new one now, or? I am. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm starting to work on it, but it's hard to kind of do it in the middle of all of the press still for this one, but um, I'm working on something that's uh, science fiction. And oh, okay. so I, I kind of, I want to talk to you. I want to pick your brain about how you think I can approach science fiction, but from a documentary perspective still, <laughs> no reflection hmm, of the real world. Interesting. But let's talk about that um, uh, when we are off. <laughs> like yes. In, uh, on, like, and if you want uh, money, then we can get some money from Sweden, maybe. I don't uh, know. We that are, is my, uh, <laughs> that was basically what you wanted to ask me. That's, so. that's really, I, I just, uh, I, this whole conversation was so that I could pitch yeah, exactly, you and get exactly. financing from <laughs> Um, um, no, but th no. Th thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much and really nice to uh, have the opportunity and say hello to Barry also. I will, I will. Thank yeah. you. We'll talk okay. soon. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lulu Wang, Ruben Ostlund, thank you so much for joining us here on the Talk House podcast. I love when the pairings we put together for the Talkcast podcast lead to some kind of collaboration or something in the works. I'd love to think that Ruben may be, you know, a co-producer, executive producer on uh, Lulu's new movie. I'm here for it. I think that'd be very, very exciting. You guys make things happen. <laughs> Katie, you have an episode of Little Gold Men that just dropped today that has an excerpt of today's conversation and a lot more about Lulu and Ruben. Yeah, and uh, it's also part of the Little Goldman Book Club that we've been running this month, where we're going to have a discussion of the Joan Didion book, The Last Thing He Wanted, which is going to be a movie Love from it. Dee Reese coming Excellent. up soon. So more talk about powerful female directors. We're in a really interesting time with the show because we're about to hit the fall festivals of Toronto and Telluride. So there will be so many movies to talk about soon. Uh, but for now, we're kind of just looking forward, which is another reason it's so fun to have Lulu and Ruben, because we get to talk more about The Farewell. Yes. Today's conversation was recorded by Jakob Hermann at Top Floor Studios in Gothenburg and here in New York by our co-producer, Mark Yoshizumi. The Talk House's theme song was composed and performed by The Range. You can follow The Talk House on all socials at Talk House. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, MySpace, TalkBook, Backsquare. <laughs> and subscribe to the show. We have some amazing episodes coming down the pipeline right now. And you can find Little Golden Men on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform that you prefer. And you can follow us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And you can find me and all my Little Gold Men colleagues at VanityFair.com. 
Katie, thanks again for joining us here on the show. Let's do more stuff together soon. You can count on it. Until next week, I'm Ellie Einhorn. Nick Dawson. Peace. And little gold men. (laughs) 